Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And we're staying on in Johannesburg as well, where Lucy Corkin is joining us for the first time on the show.、Uh, Lucy is、uh, really a remarkable academic who、uh, has been doing a lot of research on China-Angola relations, and、uh, is also、uh, a research associate at the. Let me see, make sure I get this all right, Lucy. You're a research associate at the Africa Asia Center for the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. There's a very long resume, which I won't go into right now, but nonetheless, we are thrilled. To have you on the show today. Thank you so much. And as I mentioned,、uh, Lucy is doing a lot of really in- in- interesting writing on Sino-Angolan relations, and it's one of the areas that we haven't really delved into a lot on this show. But it is, in many ways, one of the most important relationships for China in all of Africa. Angola, of course, is、uh, Africa is China's largest trading partner. Much of that coming through、uh, oil. Angola came up in the in the news. Oh, I'd say Cobus about six or seven months ago, maybe even last year, with the famous ghost towns.、Uh, and this was these infrastructure. Projects where they built hundreds, maybe even thousands, apartments that were not lived in. We've also seen、uh, reports of really crappy infrastructure that's being built, and so that's kind of been the the headline. But when we talk to Lucy today, we're really going to talk about a topic. And please, I urge you, don't turn off the show after I read the title because it's actually going to be very fascinating:、uh, uncovering African agencies, Angola's management of China's credit lines. And there's the operative word, credit lines, and we're going to talk about that. So. Lucy, let's just kind of get right into it. Why is the question of credit lines so important in Angola,、uh, and why was that the focus of your research when you talk about the broader Sino-Angolan relationship? Well, hi, sort of. Afternoon again.、Um, I think just in terms of looking at the China Africa, the China Angola, sorry, relationship, the credit lines is pretty much. Where everything started, and in order to understand what's actually going on between the two countries, I think it's really important to understand the credit lines and how they were almost the cornerstone. Is actually what one of the the Angolan diplomats I spoke to called it of the relationship in terms of how it actually it, it started all in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. So basically, you're saying follow the money.、Uh, Okay, so Cobus, follow the money. Definitely a good a good way of putting it. Okay, so Cobus, before I let you kind of、uh, get in there, let me just quickly summarize some of the key milestones with respect to these credit lines.、Uh, the first batch of credit was made back in 2002 when the Chinese government provided provided 150 million dollars for infrastructure projects. Uh, then、uh, a first loan was made back in 2004 for two billion dollars, and that loan rate was at 1.5 percent, which is again that was the LIBOR rate at the time. But at the same time, it really goes to show you、uh, the power of these Chinese loans at such low interest rates. And the loan was guaranteed by an agreement to supply 10,000 barrels of oil a day to China. So again, early on in the in the in the relationship back in 2004, we saw some of the trends that are very much prominent today. One, very very Low interest rates and two,、uh, offsetting these loans with oil. The second and third loans were worth 2.5 billion dollars and were signed in 2007. 
then a second credit line, which came from China International Fund. And Lucy, we're going to get you to talk about some of the key players because CIF is one of the very interesting players. It was made in 04 and 05. Let me just skip ahead now to the fourth credit line, which came out. Uh, and that was uh, a very limited – there wasn't a lot of information about that, but that came from the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. Uh, estimates vary as to the total value of the funds made available, but somewhere it's between 125 and $14.5 billion. So the numbers just skyrocket up from 2002 to today. Uh, so let's talk about where this money is coming from. We've heard some of the players are the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the China Development Bank, the China International Fund. Who are the players when it comes to these loans? Well, in in the case of Angola, I think China Exim Bank is is definitely the central the central sort of banking institution there. I just want to um, rewind very quickly when you talk when you talked about the interest rate. The interest rate was actually LIBOR plus one point seven five. Ah, good correction. So. LIBOR, LIBOR was about, in, in 2004, LIBOR was about, I think it was 1.2 or so. Um, so then you've got to add uh, 1.75 to that. And it's actually very interesting because that is a big misnomer among, you know, what actually happened, you know, in terms of the interest rates with these with these loans because LIBOR makes a big difference. I mean, just before the, the financial crash, LIBOR was sitting at almost 6%. So if you look at – so which means that the Angolans are paying 7.75% on these loans, which is still – it's still quite – Possibly on the lower side of the range, but it's definitely within. It's definitely market related, so it's not nearly as concessional as um, a lot of people are, are led to believe in terms of how the Exim Bank structures its loans and the kinds of risk policies that Exim Bank has, particularly with regards to countries like Angola, which, let's be honest, um, are fairly sort of high risk, particularly for the Chinese institutions, because uh, lending to Angola to, to African sovereigns was still quite a new game for them. Lucy, so, you know, kind of when, when they gave these loans, um, you know, they, they came in for a lot of, a lot of criticism. Um, and, you know, there, there was the, these, uh, these perceptions that the Exxon Bank is kind of bulldozing into, you know, into these countries um, and, you know, throwing loans around. Um, and you, you've questioned a lot of those assumptions. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that and particularly about how you saw the role of the African, elite, African elites, particularly the Angolan elite, um, in, in, you know, kind of in managing this, this these lines of credit sure absolutely i mean i think i think the one so the one the one issue that I think needed to be unpacked a bit more was again the, the concessional nature of these loans and i 've talked a little bit a little bit about that. Uh, the other one was essentially that China was buying influence through the extension of these loans and that's that 's a logical assumption because particularly in terms of you know foreign aid um, you know that that's it's 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 generally assumed that countries that extend foreign aid to another country are trying to build some kind of political capital but in the case of angola it's actually quite interesting because i think if you look at um, you know, around 2008, 2009, when the oil price absolutely plummeted from, I think it was the worst was it was one, it was $145 a barrel, and then it just sort of absolutely plummeted to $45 a barrel. So that wiped out a huge amount of the Angolan government's revenue, and all construction stopped. And, and I mean all construction. It wasn't just that suddenly the Chinese companies were carried on being paid, and, you know, the Portuguese and the Koreans and the South Africans were left out in the cold. 
everybody stopped. And I think that's something that is, it's less, it's less appreciated for, for Angola. What was, what the, the most important thing about this relationship was that in 2003, 2004, the oil price was, was really low. It was about $60 a barrel. Uh, they couldn't get money from the World Bank and the IMF, which was generally your first port of call as, you know, an African country, newly independent, you know, post-war in the stages of national reconstruction. Um, and for various reasons, they couldn't get the loans. So this, the, 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 the arrangement that was created with China at the time was, was quite a godsend. But what is quite interesting is that there's this huge assumption that China sort of muscled in on the, the economy and no one else could get a word in edgeways. But, I mean, looking at who is actually involved in Angola, um, particularly in the oil sector and in the construction sector, the Angolan elite have actually been quite careful in making sure that although there are a lot of contracts that are being done by Chinese companies. There are still, there's still a huge amount being done by a range of other actors. And they've, they've actually used the, almost the breathing space that, that, that the Chinese credit lines uh, afforded them to actually almost expand the number of countries and the number of, of, of companies that they, that they're doing business with rather than just rely solely on China and Chinese companies. Because let's be honest, They've played this game before, and during the Cold War, they tied everything to the Soviet Union, and that had its own set of, of, of issues and compromises. So, you know, in this new world of, you know, post-Cold post War era, they were going to make very sure that they were going to actually talk to everybody and to be as open as they could be in terms of who they were prepared to do business with. But they were going to be, they were very, very careful to control who they were, who they were doing business with, so they do business with with everybody. But the way that that business was done was quite was in quite a controlled manner and with a select few um, at the top of the political pyramid. I want to go back to what you just talked about: how the fact that you know early on in the relationship when the Angolan government was looking for partners and they went to the IMF and the World Bank, and, and I recall some of the readings that I did several years ago, and I may be wrong here, but that the that the West really was trying to impose a number of of political concessions in exchange for providing aid to Angola. The Angolans didn't want to do that because they said they were still coming out of the revolution and they weren't ready to do that. Of course, the Chinese come in with their no-strings-attached policy, and that was much more amenable to what Jose Eduardo Santos, the president, uh, who's been president, of course, for 33 years, he uh, he was much more amenable to that. Is that a fair contrast to say, you know, they looked to the West, the West basically wanted to impose a whole lot of conditions, the Angolans didn't want that, they go to China, free and clear, they get the money, they get the deals with the Chinese without having to make any democracy and political uh, concessions? Well, yes and no. I mean, I hate to sound like an economist here on the one hand, but on the other. But but I think that it, it depends. This is a very, very sensitive issue in, in Angola. And I found it fascinating that whereas in most cases, uh, sort of the, the, the Angolan government perspective was very, very different from um, – sort of the perspective of, of Western diplomats who happened to be doing service in, in Luanda when I did my field research. What I found really interesting is that, and, and, and particularly Angolan civil society are generally very opposed to the views that the Angolan government um, have. This was one issue that everybody seemed to agree on, that in fact, that, that situation was very, very badly managed by the international community, I hate that word, but but basically the Western partners that were engaging with Angola, because at the very least, it sort of drove 
Angola into the arms of China, as as sort of one respondent put it. But on the other hand, I think that particularly, I mean, in, in 2000, there was still this blueprint of, okay, you know, you're a post-war country, you must rebuild now, but you have no money, you're bankrupt, so therefore, you know, we're going to impose, you can't embark on this massively expensive reconstruction program, you're going to have to practice fiscal austerity, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to, you know, uh, show us much more transparency in terms of your budget, we need to unravel what's going on with Sonangol. And the reason that the Angolan government didn't like what the Western governments were saying were, were twofold. The one was is that they were not prepared to reveal to the world what was going on um, with Sonangol and the Ministry of Finance because it was incredibly murky. And this is a it was a financial system that had basically been run in an oil in a in a, in a state of war for you know almost three decades. So it was it was there was a huge amount of 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 you know, opacity in terms of how all of those things were being managed and. If you think about it, there are very few governments that are prepared to tell you exactly what they're doing in terms of their finances, particularly if it's, it revolves around a commodity as sensitive as petroleum. But the other thing was is that essentially the IMF and the World Bank were saying you must practice financial austerity. You may not spend the way that you want to spend. And this is a country that had practically no national infrastructure at all. It had all been destroyed. And they did need to spend. Otherwise, their economy was not going to grow. And so they actually, and they were being told that they were not going to be lent the money because they didn't think that they needed to spend it right then, which was completely contrary to the way that the Angolan government saw themselves growing out of the mess that the economy was in at that stage. And I think that's fairly valid. I mean, if, if you look at what America is doing right now, America is trying to grow itself out of a crisis. Um, and there are all sorts of questionable financial policies that are going around that. So it, it is... The, of course, there are issues with transparency, and of course, there are a number of, diff- of of very valid reasons for why perhaps you know money shouldn't have been lent to the Angolan government. At the same time, there is a huge amount of hypocrisy in terms of how these governments were trying to tell Angola it should manage, it should spend its money or not, and and manage it. Um, one of the very interesting aspects for me about Angola is um, that, on the one hand, it has all of this. You know, all of this is these natural resources, and a lot of it is being is, is very lucratively being sold to China. And on the other hand, a lot of this trade is happening on you know against the background of of a massive, really radical wealth gap. Um, has the Chinese investment um, and the the credit lines has any of that you know started trickling down to normal Angolans, or is there really still a very stark division between the elite and the rest of the country? Look. I think there is there's definitely a really stark gap. I think I think the one concrete direct way that the the Chinese construction projects and this is not just the Chinese construction projects, the Brazilians and the Portuguese have done a lot of these projects as well. But that basic things like having a road, having a road network being built, having um, the train system be being refurbished, basic transport has been incredibly important for your average Angolan because um, after the war. You had the MPLA, so which is the the Movimento Popular para Libertação de Angola, which is, for, is it the, the current ruling party. Their stronghold was in Luanda, and during the war, about half of the population of Angola actually moved into Luanda because the rest of the country basically was, you know, it was just it was the the, the arena for 
um, for UNITA camps and for UNITA soldiers who operated in a, in a guerrilla manner. But as a result, they destroyed all the infrastructure to make it difficult for anybody but a guerrilla army to, to move around. And so you found a lot of people that were completely and utterly isolated. Um, so even if they were trying to, you know, sort of to farm, they had no way of getting their crops to any kind of town that was prepared, you know, to barter for them. And, um, and it was incredibly isolating. So now with the opening up of roads, there's a huge amount of communication that has actually been opened up. Um, Funnily enough, it actually has meant that more and more people are streaming to Luanda because that remains the most developed part of the country. But it's been incredibly important for transport around the country and even things like um, the cellular sort of telecommunications. The, the Chinese company ZTE and Huawei have been quite instrumental in developing that technology with with um, with the Chinese incumbents. So from that perspective, um, there has been you know, there has been sort of a level of, of, of direct benefit for the, you know, for the Angolan on the street. There's a lot more in terms of commodity and, and in terms of um, accessibility that is for, for, the, for the, the average Angolan. But on the other hand, if you look at the way that the economy is structured, it, in terms of oil, you don't need a lot of people. You need a lot of, you need a lot of investment and you need very few in terms of manpower to, to get, to get that industry up and running. And as a result, it's, it's a couple of thousand people that are employed by Sonangol, the national oil company, and maybe a couple of ten, you know, sort of another sort of another couple of sort of uh, tens of thousands of, of Angolans who are employed um, in the in the oil sector for with with other companies. But it really isn't a mass employer, and. That's the big problem is that, you know, this wealth trickles down in terms of the oil industry to a very few number of people. And because the oil industry, by its very nature, is incredibly foreign invested, a lot of that money and a lot of a lot of those those profits are are accrued by um, by foreign nationals as well. And then in terms of the state, well, the state does accrue that money, but then it depends on what the state decides to spend that money on. And in the case of Angola, that's not always as clear to the public as it might be. Well, you've painted a rather complex picture here of the relationship, which is, I think, what you intended to do from the outset. Uh, and, as, and as we kind of wrap this, this, this kind of discussion up, um, I just want to get from you, uh, you know, on balance, do you think that the relationship with China has been more positive or negative? And then I hate to kind of boil it down into that and maybe a little bit of both. But, you know, back in 2011, The Economist came out with uh, a very interesting article profiling the China International Fund, and they singled out Angola. And they used that as an example of how really the Chinese are profiting greatly at the expense of the Angolans. Uh, at the same time, you've talked about the enhancements to infrastructure, to transportation, to communications. That's been a net positive. But at the same time, Angola you know, remains one of the most corrupt, one of the least transparent, one of the highest Gini coefficient countries in the world, uh, that all of this money coming in is reinforcing the, the traditional powers, the traditional elites that are anti-democratic, that have not acceded to the requests of the, of the international community for more transparency, more civic participation, all the good things that we think come with uh, becoming a more global economy. So with that very complex picture, when you look at 2013, now 2014, uh, and you look back at the past 10 or 15 years, do you think that Angola as a whole has benefited more from the relationship with China, or has it, re has it really reinforced some of the more negative uh, tendencies within the society? 
So I want to turn that question on its head because I think it's one that people always ask, you know, has China been good for Africa or, you know, intername of African country here? And I think that's actually not the question because whether China has been good or bad for an African country is almost immaterial because it is there. The question as to what that impact is going to be is actually much more of a function of the nature of governance in that country. And it's much more of a responsibility of the government of that country in terms of how that Chinese influence filters in, whether politically, economically, or in any other way at all. And that's actually the whole point of the book, was saying, look, stop making it a China issue. It's actually an African issue. And in the case of the book that I wrote, an Angolan issue, that, you know, China is, whether it's you can't really classify it sort of as overall bad or overall good because it's a very complex it's a very complex issue and there're a huge number of actors doing different things you know politically and commercially but how that is filtered in or, or let into the borders of a country is very much the job of the of the Angolan government as gatekeeper to 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 filter in this influence or to regulate it in terms of a way that it will it will benefit the country and I think that yes Angola has had an enormous amount of benefit from the relationship of from with China but I think the more important question is is who in Angola because you know there are certain people within the political elite that I have I think have benefited have benefited absolutely. And if you look at that relationship with CIF, with the China International Fund, the only reason that they continue to have as much of a presence and a footprint in that country as they do is because they have made very, very sure that their highly placed Angolan partners are making as much money as they are out of the deals and the projects that they are doing within within Angola. So on the Angolan side, on balance, I would say that you know, the Angolan side has has benefited a huge amount, but this has not been an equal benefit. And as is as is usual in, in you know, in, in countries that have the political structures that a country like Angola does, unfortunately, a lot of these benefits are skewed up at the top. Well, Cobus, there we heard it one more time. Uh, it seems to be a recurrent theme on our show, which is the governance question. And it really isn't about the Chinese. It's something you and I have talked about uh, ad nauseum to say that really the question, as Lucy said, should be turned on its head. It is about, in the context of Zambia, even South Africa, and now Angola, that really how these relationships are managed with China is much more dependent on the African uh, domestic situation within the country itself rather than China. What's your final thoughts on this subject and what Lucy's been saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, kind of, I, I come from a very different field than Lucy, but but that's definitely my my perception as well. Um, I was actually wondering, in in the case of Angola, particularly, just just to finalise, um, you know, kind of, I wonder if you could just give us a, a very basic uh, comparison between how China does business in Angola and how how Brazil does business there. Um, do you see kind of similar similar patterns in in and and for that reason, do should we then assume that that Angola upsets some of those patterns, or are there actually differences in in you know in, in different kind of paradigms within which they do business? Well, it's actually that's actually quite an interesting question, Cobus. I think that the, the three the three countries that well, Portugal, I suppose we might be able to put a question mark over given recent events. But the three countries that have traditionally done very well in Angola have been um, Portugal and Brazil, and, and then and increasingly China, and they actually operate on a very very similar system that the Chinese credit line 
sort of mechanism is is not actually unique to China at all. And Brazil has a very, very well-developed system whereby it has a series of of export promotion programs that are actually funded by uh, the Brazilian National Bank for Economic economic development, which acts as a kind of export credit agency in terms of promoting uh, Brazilian exports and Brazilian export, uh, Brazilian investments in, in, in Angola. And it, it functions in a very, very similar way to, um, to China Exim Bank. But what's even more interesting is that the programs of, of this bank have actually come up at the World Trade Organization for um, for unfair practices. So the Brazilians, the Brazilians have you know, have have a very interesting set of policies that often fly quite close to the wind in terms of, um, you know, in, in terms of international legislation. And I would say I would say that there there are a large number of similarities in terms of the way that that, that the Brazilians have managed to to enter into Angola. Of course, you know, they have the benefit of a shared cultural heritage and you know an extra sort of thirty to forty years of of doing very very beneficial sort of business in in Angola over over China, but they. When you get down to it, in terms of the export promotion mechanisms, they're actually very similar. Lucy, well, unfortunately, we we could go on for this topic for a very long time, but unfortunately, we don't have any more time left. But again, if you want to follow what Lucy's been reading and writing, uh, Uncovering African Agency, Angola's Management of China's Credit Lines is her book. Uh, By her own admission, the title of the book is nowhere nearly as interesting as the actual substance of the book, and I've been reading uh, some extracts from it, and it's absolutely fantastic. If you just type in Lucy Corkin, uh, C-O-R-K-I-N, into Google, you'll come up with an enormous amount of interesting reading and I highly recommend it. Hey, Lucy, at the end of every show, one of the things that we do here is we kind of, you know, refer people if they want to follow what you're reading, writing and thinking. Uh, are you, do you have a presence on the internet anywhere that people can follow you? Absolutely. Um, my Twitter hashtag is um, L-U-C-Y-C-O-R-K-I-N. And um, I'm always sort of posting certain articles and making snide remarks about what I think is going on in the world. So nice. if, they're, if, they're keen, if they're keen to see what I'm thinking, that's, that's, that's a good place to start. We like snide remarks. Uh, so, uh, and Cobus, where, uh, where can people find you on the Internet? Um, you'll see me on our Facebook page. You'll see my name in, in brackets when I comment on, on you know, so you comment on different different kind of opinions being raised. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And that Facebook page that Cobus referred to now has 135,000 followers. We're just so excited that the discussions are becoming very, very animated. Uh, Lucy, I hope you'll join our uh, our conversation that we have going on over there. We, we do talk about all sorts of topics from Angola to Ivory to politics to military pretty much anything that crosses uh, the agenda is there at facebook.com slash China Africa Project we are updating the page almost 18 hours a day between me here in Asia and Cobus in uh, in Johannesburg so if you really want a curated view of the day's top uh, China Africa stories Facebook is a great place also my Twitter feed at eolander e-o-l-a-n-d-e-r I'm tweeting those top China stories and China Africa stories almost every day and of course if you want to follow us uh, on this podcast, the best way is to head over to iTunes, and we would love it if you actually left us a little comment. Uh, that helps it make it easier for other people to find the podcast as well. So until next time, we'll be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.